soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm, Episode 2, Are You Going? Oh yes, welcome back. Thank you for so many kind comments and emails and texts and calls about Episode 1. Of course, there is the incomparable Mariah Carey with that song, Vision of Love, the song of the year in 1990. As I said, Thunder and Lightning will feature music from 1990 and early 1991. And that song by Mariah Carey, Vision of Love, loved it the first time I heard it, and I must have heard it a thousand times in 1990 and enjoyed it each and every time. Although it has nothing to do with Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I do want to say very briefly, Mariah Carey set the bar for every female R&B singer that has come after her since 1990. No hashtag required. Something else I heard about a thousand times starting in August of 1990 and going right on through to the moment where we were deployed was a variation of the question, are you going are y'all getting sent down? Are y'all going to deploy? Are you going over there? In some variation, that question was asked to me over and over again. Everyone knew that I had been in the Army for three years. I was still a reservist. My standard answer to that question, because I'm an optimist, was, I hope so. But in my heart, I believe the answer was not no, but heck no. And that's what we're talking about on episode two here. I don't remember exactly what day it was. Like I said in episode one, there is no social media in 1990. There is no email. Nobody owns a computer or a cell phone. And if you do have a cellular phone, it weighs about 37 pounds and it makes and receives phone calls. That's it. You don't have the access to information that you do today. You have three channels in PBS, the newspaper and the radio. On one of those mediums, I heard in late August of 1990 that President Bush, the first President Bush, and I'm going to stop saying first President Bush, it was President Bush, yes, we had another one. This was the first President Bush, President Bush 41, authorized the call-up or the activation of the U.S. Army reserve units, all the reserve units of all the different branches in the military. And that's what got my attention about this, and that's why people started asking me that question. Again, the people in my circle of real friends, not you know friends you occasionally see on social media, my real friends and family members knew I was a reservist. And when this happened, I remember getting a phone call uh, right away from people that I love asking me, oh, what does this mean for you again? I didn't think it meant anything at all. In fact, I will tell you until the very moment that we were wheels up on our way to the theater of operation in January of 1991, I did not think the unit that I was in was going to get anywhere close to the real war. I fully expected that we would get sent to Fort Bragg or Fort Hood or some administrative center in Europe maybe to support the war but not to actually be in it. It was my greatest fear because I believe that is exactly what was going to happen, but it didn't. 
I want to talk today on this episode about my complicated relationship with my reserve unit. And that complicated relationship was mutual, and many of the mistakes were entirely my own. But many of the lessons from that time period can be applied to our contemporary world here, circa 2020, August of 2020. Well, let's talk about how I ended up at the 217th Evacuation Hospital. As I mentioned in the episode one, I had had a wonderful experience in the 7th Infantry Division. As I mentioned, I was in the company of great professional Cold War soldiers. My company commander is still in the Army over 30 years later. He is a four-star general in charge of the Africa Corps and will one day probably be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Four-star general Townsend was my company commander. And at Fort Ord, the Fort Ord 7th Infantry Division had about 10,000 soldiers in it, but only about 3,000 were actual infantry soldiers that we called affectionately grunts, ground pounders, straight leg 11 Bravo infantry soldiers in regiments and companies and battalions. We lived at Fort Ord on a place called Infantry Hill, where we literally and figuratively looked down on everybody else. We were, at least we thought we were, God's gift to soldiering. However, the truth of the matter is, I was surrounded by very competent, very professional soldiers. So in March of 1989, when my three-year term of enlistment came to an end, I actually thought about re-enlisting. The Army was offering tremendous cash bonuses for people to re-enlist. In those days, a, a twelve dollars or $15,000 re-enlistment bonus could change your entire life. My first sergeant, First Sergeant Gill, prevailed upon me to instead stay in the Army as a reservist and pursue a college education. You have to understand, in March of 1989, there is no Monster.com, there is no LinkedIn, there is no Glassdoor.com. If I wanted to have the same upper-middle-class lifestyle that I had enjoyed as a child, if I wanted to provide that for my future family, in 1989, that meant going home, going to college, meeting someone, getting married, getting a job, buying a home, or a variation of that chronology. It's simply a different time. Generation X did not grow up with the trappings that young people grow up with today. I'm not complaining about it. I'm simply observing it. But it was the number one reason I chose not to stay in the military. As it was, I accepted a four-year re-enlistment into the Texas, what I thought was U.S. Army Reserve. I didn't know there was a distinction between U.S. Army Reserve and Texas National Guard. Because I lived in San Antonio, which today to this very day is the home of all military medicine, in 1989, it was the home of Army Medicine and a home to four other Air Force bases, Lackland, Kelly, Brooks, and Randolph Air Force Base, where my father spent 32 years working for the Air Force after a career in the enlisted Air Force. I grew up on almost a midpoint between Joint Base Fort Sam Houston and Joint Base Randolph Air Force Base. There was never any doubt that the trajectory of my life somehow was going to end up in the military, and at Fort Ord, it had gone better than I ever could have expected. 
What I didn't know is when I left the regular Army, the 7th Infantry Division, in March of 1989, I was leaving Major League Baseball in my prime and voluntarily, voluntarily joining the minor leagues until I got to my Texas National Guard unit and realized I had joined a very bad co-ed softball team that plays on weeknights and not a very good one. The disdain that I experienced that morning was mutual. The Texas National Guard is a component of the U.S. Army Reserve. There was no infantry division or artillery battalion to assign me to. Um, Like all recruiters in the military, my recruiter was less than truthful and told me that once I was assigned to this Texas National Guard outfit, I would have the opportunity to transfer to a, what we used to call a T-O-N-E unit, a real Army unit. The Texas National Guard in 1989 is what we derisively referred to as weekend warriors. My first day at drill, I felt that was an insult to the weekend and to real warriors everywhere. If you can hear the sarcasm in my voice now, you know, 31 years later, you can imagine my reaction when I walked in. But I'm telling you this story because that complicated relationship I had with the 217th Evacuation Hospital would directly lead to some of the experiences that I had during Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And there were plenty of benefits to stay in the reserves. Like I said, I lived in San Antonio. There were lots of military facilities. Even though you were a part-time service member in the reserves, one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer, you could access the military services year-round, the commissary, the PX. All that stuff was tax-free. You could save some money. I made about $125 a month, which was a lot when you're paying $217, $220 a month for rent for an apartment. So it was a good deal, and I loved the facilities. I lived close to Fort Sam Houston the summer of 1989. I spent the entire summer in an old wooden Quonset hut that had been converted into basketball courts, running full-court basketball uh, for a period of time, even playing with the most famous graduate of Cole High School, the high school that's located at Fort Sam Houston, a gentleman who went on to have a very, very successful career in the National Basketball Association. You may have heard of him. His name is Shaquille O'Neal. All you fact-checkers are happy to go out there. I'm happy to let you go out there and check. He graduated from Cole High School at Fort Sam Houston, and I I literally have an assist to Shaquille O'Neal, and it was a very, very nice guy. Get a really nice bounce, bounce pass one time. He made the shot, looked at me and said, nice shot, little man. So, uh, I, I, you know, he, and he wasn't even that big then. He was like 6'8", and I was like, hey, I think I'm about three years older than you. But anyway, that's just an aside. It was one of the benefits of being a reservist. You had access to all these beautiful facilities in Randolph Air Force Base, the show base of the Air Force. And there was a $3,000 little cash bonus. You got half up front, half two years later. So it was not so bad. And so I was happy with my decision to stay in the reserves, and I didn't think the Texas National Guard was all that different from a reserve unit. I knew it wasn't going to be the 4th Battalion, 21st Infantry, but I was okay with that on a part-time basis. Nothing prepared me, however, for what I saw on my first day of drill. It was a Saturday. It was in June of 1989. I walked in, and as I said, 
in the infantry, when we were in what was called garrison, when we were not out in the field, like I said, we lived on Infantry Hill. We thought we were better than everybody, and we tried to demonstrate that, the way we dressed, the way our uniforms looked. And it wasn't optional. You had to look that way. The standards, the high standards that were set in the 7th ID were not optional. You had to do those things. So I walked in that first morning to drill. I'll paint you a visual picture here. I walked in. I had my, we didn't wear berets in those days in the Army, the standard camouflage hat, which I had rolled down at the top, which creates a little indentation at the top and a little ridge around the circle. Uh, Sergeant Epps uh, is the person who taught me how to do that when I first got to Fort Ord, and the bill of the hat was pulled down so it wasn't sticking out straight. It was kind of pulled down over your eyes, and this was the hat I had had for a long time at Fort Ord. It had my name on the back with some reflective um, pieces of, I don't know what they were, like little reflective tape on the back, two of them showing that I was in second platoon. And so you could kind of see that when we were moving at night, as we did a lot in the 7th ID. Now, uh, like I said, this is my garrison uniform. The first thing, I walk in, and I, don't, I look like everybody else ethnically. This is a Texas National Guard unit from San Antonio. I would say it was probably 95% Hispanic. I am 100% Hispanic brown skin, black hair, so I looked like everybody else ethnically. My uniform looked nothing like anybody else. My first impression when I saw the people in formation that morning, it looked like a bunch of civilians dressed up in army clothes. I remember having that very thought. What, they don't have barbers on the south side of San Antonio? I mean, ever heard of a haircut? I'm wearing my special garrison uniform. It is not the standard woodland pattern BDU battle dress uniform that was familiar to every soldier in the 1980s and 1990s. It had a similar pattern, but it was the jungle pattern, not the solid jungle green uniform from the Vietnam era. I love that uniform too, by the way, with the angled pockets, but this was the jungle BDU. It was a little thinner in fabric. I had removed all the buttons on this uniform and had the pockets sewed down so that when it was starched, it was as flat and straight as a pizza box. That's how I walked in. My pants were starched. I had cardboard cutouts in my cargo pockets so that they kept their shape. We didn't need cell phones. We didn't have cell phones in many of your cargo pockets when you were in garrison. And I had my paint, my pants wrapped around my ankles and taped with masking tape. So they formed a cuff or a crease that ran all the way down my leg. And I had them taped around my ankles and I was wearing jungle boots, not the standard combat boots, the jungle boots, which have a leather toe and heel, but vinyl light green uppers. On the toes and heels of those boots, I had painted them with something called leather luster. This was a type of shoe polish that you painted on your boots and then you actually baked them in the oven. Now I couldn't bake these jungle boots because of the vinyl uppers, the nylon uppers, but I heated it with a blow dryer, an old Conair, you know, hair dryer. And so the tips of my boots and the heels of my boots looked like black onyx glass. That's how I walked in to that first day of drill, expecting that I would be received. You know, wow, look at this guy. The disdain, as I said, was immediate and it was mutual. 
the formation broke up. People walked past me looking at me like I had walked in wearing a pink dress, like I had never seen anything like this. And there were a couple good-looking girls that noticed me. I walked into the CP. The gentleman behind the desk was very overweight. Um, he looked up at me and he said, oh, you're the new hot shot in from the regular army. And I said, it's you who say that I am. And he said a few little things under his breath, took my thing, told me what platoon I would be in. And then he asked me, and then he said something to me in Spanish. Well, I'm adopted. My parents are wonderful Roman Catholic white folks from Fall River, Massachusetts. And I did not grow up speaking Spanish, and I do not speak Spanish now. He said something to me in Spanish, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Spanish. Everybody in the office looked up. You know, the way gophers do on the plane when a coyote is running through their little colony. Everybody looked up. And it didn't matter how sharp my uniform was, how immaculate I was. I had just committed the cultural cardinal sin in South and West San Antonio, where many of these weekend warriors were from. Now, I never experienced any kind of physical bullying or anything like that. People would say things to me in Spanish, and they would laugh, and I didn't know what they were saying. And the reason I'm bringing this up is right now in, in 2020 is we're having all of these conversations as your LinkedIn feed and social media feeds are full of you know diversity and inclusion, memes and photos and quotes and things like that. I can empathize with people that experience that kind of prejudice because I experienced it, except it was from people that looked exactly like me. The other thing that I think we can apply today is that I found out right away that if you rebel against the echo chamber of mediocrity, it's not going to make you popular, and it never did. Um, I was fortunate, however, on that first day, and the crowd of people who were walking by me looking at me like I didn't belong there, and in my mind I thought I don't belong here, a young man walked up to me, and my first thought was, is this guy old enough to be in the Army? I mentioned him last week. Mike Alonzo, who is now a sergeant with the Kirby Police Department, walked up and said, were you in the 7th Infantry Division? And he had this boyish enthusiasm, and he started telling me about the 7th Infantry Division where I just spent three years. I think he knew more about the 7th ID than I did, and we became fast Friends, and we would spend the majority of drill together. And then, of course, during the war, we spent almost all of the time together. Uh, he was the only good thing about weekend drill. That's what she said, yes. That's for Nick, who I know is listening. Now, but like I said, the reason I'm setting this up is because that, that mutual dislike that developed in that unit between myself and the majority of people in the 217th evacuation hospital made it possible for me to go do some things during the war that I otherwise would not have been able to do. And I was given the responsibility of security, and I was up on the roof when the war started. And it was funny, when we got to the war and it was go time, people were glad it was me standing outside the front door guarding the entrance to our building, but nobody knew that in March or May or June of 1989, and certainly not in August of 1990 when President Bush announced that, hey, just because you're in the Texas National Guard, you know, having fun at Fort Sam Houston playing golf for $2 a round or enjoying the PX and the BX doesn't mean that you might end up going downrange the big sandbox in the Middle East. And finally, to be fair, here in late August of 1990, as Texas and Louisiana are dealing with Hurricane Laura, 
1989 and 1990, the Texas National Guard was really, that's what they were there for, to respond to natural disasters, hurricanes, and tornadoes. And to be perfectly honest, in that role, the 217th Evacuation Hospital would have performed that role very well. We had real doctors and real nurses in that unit, but the enlisted ranks were simply a, a, a level of soldiering that I did not want to be a part of. And to my everlasting shame, I was plenty condescending and verbal about it in my own way. I've always always suffered from the, from the need to say what other people are thinking. It is a blessing and a curse. However, I do need to say in closing that the 217th Evacuation Hospital was ultimately deployed to the Gulf War, to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, which was within range of the Scud missiles. And I have to tell you, the overwhelming majority of everybody in that unit served honorably, not heroically, but honorably, which is what is expected of every soldier. Hey, thank you so much for listening to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm, next week. I go back 30 years to my rearrival on the campus of San Antonio College as the newly elected president of the college Republicans, where I would come face to face with the same intolerant student mobs that you see today, and it would lead to one of the most amazing experiences before and after the war. Tune in next week, Episode 3, Useful Idiots, and we'll talk about it. Thank you again for listening to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dias, and we'll talk to you soon.